0: Kent Garrett, welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. There were 18 of us in the Harvard College class of 1963. We were born in the 1940s and are now 80 years old. We entered Harvard as Negroes but graduated as blacks and African Americans. Our guest is Joanna Swartz. She is professor of law at UCLA School of Law. She teaches civil procedure and a variety of courses on police accountability, and public interest lawyering. She is one of the country's leading experts on police misconduct litigation. She has written a new book titled Shielded, How the Police Become Untouchable. I'm joined by 18 of my Harvard classmates.
1: Uh, hi, I'm uh, Doug Shapiro. I'm a crotchety old guy living in uh, Louisville, Kentucky. I've had a multifaceted career in various aspects of biology and medicine. The uh, last couple of days, I've been uh, in the backyard uh, sharpening the edge of a long stick so that I can poke it into any uh, strange balloon that comes floating over. <laughs> my... <laughs>
0: All right, that's good. Spencer.
2: Hi, I'm Spencer. Uh... Class of 61, uh, I am uh, very much involved in uh, history and in uh, the, uh, uh, sustainable development, and uh, having uh, a good time writing about a lot
3: of different things.
4: Hi there, also Class of 63, I live uh, just south of San Francisco, so I'm about 500 miles north of you.
3: Well, hi, John Woodford here in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where I've been for a lot of years doing... Um, university, journalism, and other sorts, and now retired, but having a good time. Okay, Jerry.
5: Uh, Jerry Segundi, I live in Pasadena, California, spent most of my career as an environmental lawyer, a couple of years in the Peace Corps in Cusco, Peru, and I would welcome all of you to beautiful Pasadena, anytime you want to come
0: visit.
3: Oh, Ooh, great. Cool. <laughs> hey,
5: it's
0: good. Uh, Peter G., Peter Grille. Yeah. My name is Peter
6: Grilly. I live in the town of Harvard, not the school of the town. Um, <clears throat> I was class of 63 originally, but graduated in uh, 65. I um, grew up in Japan, where the police uh, tend to be extremely well behaved, uh, at least the recent post-war police in Japan.
7: I, <clears throat> I'm Pete Melissa Savoy and uh after harvard i i joined snick and worked with snick in south georgia and uh did time in three different jails down there so <laughs> i uh, i got a i got a very and for a kid from the suburbs i got a very early course in police m- misconduct big time and uh you know that it's often thought that the kids from the north who went down there added a lot but mostly they learned a lot and and got a lot out of the experience and i've often thought if uh <clears throat> a sizable portion of the white population could have had the experience i did in south georgia where there was a real apartheid system uh protected by the police and enforced by the police there would be a lot more understanding of what what's going on today
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mason, uh, Mason morfitt I live in
4: Maine most of the time. I'm currently in Florida. Uh, 62-3, which is a uh, official euphemism for having been thrown out after my freshman year before being uh, readmitted. Um, <laughs> Tell that story sometime, Mason. <laughs> um, my one brief experience I had with the law was a witness to a robbery in Boston. And when I went to court to testify, the lawyer for the accused got up and told the judge that Mr. Green had not appeared yet. I didn't understand that that was uh, 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 court language for the, the fact that he hadn't been paid yet. And uh, oh. the judge deferred the case to another date. I never heard again from him. Good.
8: Justice.
5: Huh?
8: David Othmer. Uh, David Althborough from Philadelphia. I grew up in South and Central America and spent most of my career in public broadcasting with WNEP in New York and WHYY here in
0: Philadelphia. Okay, Liz.
6: Hi. um, I'm also class of 63, uh, currently living in Tacoma Park, Maryland, just outside of DC. However, I'm a Californian and identify as such. I'm a graduate of Hollywood High School. I'm an almost completely retired clinical psychologist, and I'm also pursuing an understanding of my enslaver ancestors who lived in Charlottesville.
1: David Allen, also class of
6: 63, uh, in Concord, Mass. Uh, Peter Grilly and I are almost neighbors. Almost neighbors, yes. Uh, particularly considering how spread around the country we all are. Uh, but I grew up. Across the river from where Doug Shapiro is. I grew up uh, in southern Indiana, a farm boy, and I still am a farm boy in simple words. <laughs> um, I've had a life in business and uh, academics, but uh, the last decades it's been activism, particularly in democracy. I've been doing what I can to get, I'm also an HBS graduate, my Harvard Business School graduates up to speed on democracy. And what you're going to tell us today is going to be a key part of that, looking forward to it.
0: (laughs) Okay, Nick. Uh,
8: Nick Bancroft, outside of Boston, um, class of 63, Harvard Business School, India, for Peace Corps a couple of years, um, introduced to at least watching the police there enforce their code with lattes, L-A-T-H-I, bamboo sticks about six feet long, and you didn't want to get close. To them at all. Um, my first memories of, uh, of police here, out <clears throat> in Boston, in a small town, was getting stopped um, going through a red light. And uh, the guy stopped me. I think I was 18 years old. And uh, he said, did you know what you just did? You went through a red light. And I said, yes, sir. He said, don't call me, sir. And so I said, yes, sir. no way out of that one
3: biggest
8: biggest issues in in medfield mass where i live now in our household is when um the police call up to ask for a donation for an event (laughs) and my wife uh she's listening to me take the call And I know what her reaction is. She said it's totally inappropriate for police to ask for donations to some (laughs) uh, uh, fest of theirs.
1: Okay. All
2: right. Yeah. Yeah. Hamp Howell, Nashville, Tennessee, class of 63, lived in uh, Brazil and Puerto Rico. Uh, Now I'm in Nashville. I didn't realize how much I had in common with uh, with some of you jailbirds like peter uh, <laughs> uh, i uh, i I was kept naked in a uh, holding cell with uh eleven other protesters for a day uh after the pentagon demonstration and uh uh i i ended up spending thirty days in uh, uh in dc federal jail and uh occoquan work workhouse and alexandria uh virginia as, as a result of sitting in front of the pentagon between a uh nun and a six-year-old lady i'm sorry a priest dan berrigan and a and a 60-year-old lady singing america the beautiful in front of the pentagon uh, uh. Uh, uh, my my voice is very bad but uh <laughs> I didn't realize I was that bad. <laughs> okay.
0: Jeff.
4: Yeah. Uh, hi. I'm Jeff Fox. Um, like uh, several of, of, the, of my other comrades here, I spent a lot of time in Latin America. Uh, um, as a starting first as a community organizer, then as a sociologist trying to analyze and try to keep track of what was going on and a lot going on. Um, in in many countries of uh, South America, and now I'm living in Spain and uh, trying to understand major social conflicts through fiction. You know, most recently, a book about the Paris Commune, and now I'm working on on Germany. But uh, my my jail experience has been limited to three countries. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, um, in well, 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 Chicago, it was like some of you. It was uh, as a result of a protest. We were at, at that at that time uh, major sit-ins to. Uh, we were trying to desegregate the school system. Mm. Uh, this was in uh, the days of Mayor Daley, and uh, yeah, they just they just really uh, arrested a whole bunch of us and. Uh, And 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 it actually turned out to be a pretty good experience. I mean, you get we're all together, people we didn't hadn't probably hadn't known before, and that was part of um, part of the way we organized. Um, Then uh, a very brief uh, jail term in a uh, in in a very primitive uh, prison in uh, in Puerto Rico, Um, but this this was this was for a supposed driving offense. And um, and then uh, and then in Caracas, I was mistaken. Because, because I suppose because I'm light and because I have blue eyes, I was taken to be a Bulgarian communist, one of the Petkoff brothers. They didn't know, they didn't know which Petkoff I was, but I had to be one of them.
2: <laughs> okay, all right, great, great. They, were,
0: they were very important, in they could, right, right, Marcy. So,
5: Um,
8: I run Clean Air Campaign and its Open Rivers Project in New York City, which advocated fairer, wiser public spending priorities for decades, and I'm working on a massive archive now.
0: Okay, George.
7: George Jones, class of 63, currently in Balmy, Ann Arbor, Michigan.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, all right, all and Professor yeah. Swartz, welcome. Thank you for joining us, and we're so happy to have you. and Congratulations on your new book!
9: Thank you so much, and uh, what a pleasure to be here, uh, and to get to meet all of you virtually and hear about your lives and uh, adventures with the law and uh, and and everything else. <laughs> so <laughs> I'll, I'll spend a couple minutes um, talking about my book and, and how I came to write it and, and what I uh, hope to accomplish with it. And, and then I really look forward to your questions. Um, so I, uh, I started my legal career. I went to law school hoping to be a public defender, expecting to be a public defender, and then started working in a legal clinic during law school uh, doing civil rights litigation, representing prisoners. In fact, representing uh, female women prisoners at a, a federal prison in, in Connecticut who had been raped by guards. Um, and, and doing that work got me really interested in and passionate about civil rights litigation, uh, civil litigation on behalf of people whose constitutional rights have been violated. And that's the work that I did after I graduated law school in 2020, I mean, sorry, in 2000 um, and uh, worked at a small civil rights firm in New York City. And while I was working at that firm, I started asking myself a a number of different questions or questions certainly uh, were were prompted to me um, about how civil rights litigation actually worked on the ground. Uh, When I was a law student, I, I, read a lot of um, very optimistic uh, notions about the effects that civil rights litigation would have. Bringing these civil cases would deter officers who'd engaged in misconduct, prevent these kinds of harms from happening again. And these were the kinds of values that motivated me to become a civil rights lawyer. But as I was practicing in New York, uh, I, I came to learn that, uh, that the system didn't work the way that I had expected. I think the first realization for me was when I was working in, with a group of lawyers on a class action uh, against the New York City Department of Corrections. Uh, we were suing for the practices on Rikers Island, which you may have read about, uh, uh, have been in the news for decades, really, uh, just a pattern of egregious and excessive force by officers against prisoners there. And I was deposing officers, so questioning them under oath. And uh, as I was preparing for those depositions, I would look through their personnel files. And I was really surprised to see there was no record of any lawsuits filed against these officers. So I would ask them during their depositions whether they'd been sued before. And their answers were yes or maybe or I don't remember. <laughs> I would ask officers how many times they'd been sued, what the allegations were in the cases, what the resolutions were of the cases, whether they had won or lost. They didn't have any of that information. They didn't know. And because it was a class action, we were also suing the hires up, You know, the assistant wardens, the wardens themselves. And we would ask them what they knew about the lawsuits that had been filed against their officers. They said they didn't know. And I Mm -hmm. thought as someone who had dedicated my life to bringing these cases and uh, for our clients who who wanted to affect policy uh, to change practices through these cases that they were bringing, it was pretty shocking to me that neither the officers nor the higher ups knew how many times their officers had been sued or even what the allegations were in these cases. So fast forward uh, several years, I joined the faculty at UCLA Law School, and I really dedicated myself to trying to empirically study some of the questions that were raised for me as a, uh, as a practicing lawyer. One of them was, to what extent do police departments actually pay attention to the information in these lawsuits? Uh, who pays these in in settlements and judgments are are entered against officers, who pays in these cases, what effects do these claims have? And those were the kinds of questions that I began to answer through my uh, research. And for those who have engaged in research, uh, it may not surprise you to know that every time I answered a question, it begged five other questions for me to answer about how the world really worked. And so this has been my life for the past 15 years or so uh, asking questions first prompted by my practice as a civil rights lawyer, answering those questions, and then answering the follow up questions uh, that were prompted by the research that I had done. And uh, fast forward uh, again to May 2020, and George Floyd was murdered, and uh, all of a sudden people became very interested in the mechanics of civil rights litigation. Uh, There was all of this focus and attention on a legal doctrine called qualified immunity, um, which I had been studying. The first paper I wrote regarding that, that talked about qualified immunity was back in 2014 and had spent a lot of time studying this doctrine. All of a sudden people wanted to know what it was, what effect it had and questions like who paid when these cases were uh, successful, and so I decided to write a book uh, that would talk about these issues, that would translate them to an audience beyond the law review uh, readership, which is you know wonderful but <laughs> but narrow, and to try to get these issues out to a broader audience and and an understanding of how these uh, legal rules worked, and really what I try to show in this book is that when people uh, have had their rights violated by the police, uh, there are really only three avenues to get what many people want when they think about justice, uh, meaning some sort of uh, punishment for the officer, some, some, um, some way of preventing this kind of thing from happening in the future. And none of these paths towards justice work very well. Uh, one is filing a, a or is, is a criminal uh, prosecution and conviction, um, but officers are very, very rarely subject to criminal prosecution. Uh, cases like Tyree Nichols and George Floyd are exceptions to the rule, cases where there's been a lot of public attention paid to these cases, and you see, you know, criminal prosecutions in those cases. But in the cases you haven't heard of, Criminal prosecutions are extremely rare, very rare when people are killed by police and and almost non-existent nonexistent when people are not killed uh, or their rights are violated in in ways that that don't involve the use of force. Another path is through internal internal investigations, discipline, firing, decertification, like Roger Goldman has has, uh, talked about and worked on. Uh, But this is also very rare. Union agreements uh, create very protected, protective uh, bills of rights for, for officers that control how investigations and discipline and terminations happen, uh, and often provide a, a remedy to get one's job back, even if they've been fired. And so when the Department of Justice has looked at internal affairs investigations processes in dozens of police departments, they've found uh, lots of very significant problems with those processes. So criminal prosecutions don't don't deliver justice, internal affairs investigations don't really deliver justice. What we are left with are civil suits seeking money or seeking some sort of court ordered reform. And these kinds of cases are promising In fact, I think that they're better suited to achieve justice than criminal prosecutions or internal affairs investigations ever could. A person whose rights have been violated can bring a lawsuit themselves. They don't have to wait for a prosecutor or an internal affairs investigator to take up the case. And they can unearth information during the the litigation process that prosecutors and internal affairs investigators would never be obligated to make public. And they can get money to compensate them for their harms, or some sort of forward-looking relief, neither of which uh, would be available through these alternative uh, processes. But what I show in Shielded is that although the ability to bring civil cases holds a great deal of promise and potential, the ability to sue, the ability to get relief, and the ability to actually affect meaningful change uh, have been hampered in multiple ways by the Supreme Court and by state and local governments who've erected what I refer to as shields throughout the litigation process uh, and even after a case is successful that prevent them from uh, having the effect that... um, you would hope and expect that these cases would. And so the book really travels through the civil litigation process. And each chapter focuses on another aspect of the litigation system. Uh, It describes the challenges of finding a lawyer, the challenges of having enough facts at the beginning of the case to to, uh, begin a, a, a litigation the challenges of proving a constitutional violation, the challenges of this legal doctrine, qualified immunity that's gotten a great deal of attention, uh, the challenges of holding a city responsible for the violations of their officers, the challenges of convincing judges and juries uh, of those violations, especially when the plaintiff in the case is not a uh, perfect victim, Um, And then, even when people are able to succeed, the challenges of making these uh, successes actually influence behavior moving forward, um, because local governments and state governments have insulated police departments and their officers from financial or other consequences of these successful cases. And my argument is that all of those protections seen together really make the police all but untouchable, which is, the, uh, which is, the, which is part of the title uh, of the book. So my goal is to reveal and describe those barriers uh, to relief. It's also to tell the stories of people who have, whose stories have not received the kind of widespread press attention um, that that victims like uh, George Floyd and Tyree Nichols have. There are many, many people uh, in this country who have suffered uh, egregious wrongdoing, but uh, haven't gotten that attention. And, and it's been important to me to share some of those stories. I can tell you that in the days since this book has been published, I've heard back from, from some of uh, the people who I've spoken to and whose stories I tell in this book. and, and uh, it's been very meaningful to them to have their stories told, which is, which is meaningful in turn to me. Um, I also, I should say at the, at the end of the book, I offer some fixes or I call it, you know, a better way. Uh, And I, I don't aim to, I don't think that I offer a complete perfect solution to our current situation, but I do think that there are a lot of things that can be done by Federal, state, local governments uh, to make our justice system work better. I have to say, one of them, one of the, one of the final uh, suggestions is to encourage people to embrace. Uh, and take on their jury service. So it was funny to hear the conversation at the beginning of the hour about people hoping not to get called as jurors. Because one of the things that I do say is that it is really important for people to serve as jurors in these cases, um, people who have an open mind um, and are sympathetic to to these cases. Um, I should say, at the end of the introduction uh, to the book, I I say we cannot wait for another viral video to restart our national conversation about police violence and reform, which I wrote in 2021. Unfortunately, it is uh well here we are um yeah. in the weeks after Tyree Nichols death. But but I but I'll but I'll I'll also say what I what I uh, the, the remainder of that paragraph reads uh We must foreground the realities of civil rights litigation when we do have this conversation. Uh, Myths about the dangers of making it too easy to sue police have made a mess of our system. A shared understanding of how officers are shielded from the consequences of their actions and how those shields leave many victims without a meaningful remedy must fuel a reimagining of what it means to hold government accountable and what it means to protect and serve. (laughs) Uh, so that's an introduction uh, to Shielded. There's obviously much that is still unsaid, and I really look forward to your questions in the conversation.
1: Hey, Doug, I guess, Doug. Yes. Um, would you please comment on the role of, I guess it's uh, district attorneys in uh, guiding grand juries uh, as to whether or not they should consider even the possibility of a police officer being uh, tried for murder and whether or not the outcome of uh, grand jury deliberations might be different if there were more Black district attorneys around the country?
9: So it's a really interesting question uh, about what prosecutors' roles are in the charging process. And it's not an area of my expertise. I focus really on the uh, the civil side. But based on my... Reading of others who have um, studied this issue. It does seem that um, prosecutors, when they are considering cases involving criminal charges against uh, police officers, uh, do give officers a, a, an, an extreme um, a level of um, protections and care um, in the charging decision that is not. Uh, is is over and above and beyond what criminal defendants who are not police officers are given in these systems. And there's there's a fabulous uh, professor Cardozo named Kate Levine, whose argument has been, you know, if 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 police officers who are being, you know, possibly going to be criminally charged get all of these procedural protections and care in the grand jury process and in the decision about whether to, to be charged, uh, then, then other criminal defendants should get that layer of that extra protection, uh, as well. And I think it's, it's a really interesting, um, argument, uh, as to the race of the prosecutor, I, I, I really, that is, that is definitely beyond my depth. I can say that, um, in the, uh, in the aftermath of Tyree Nichols' death, there was a lot made about the fact that the officers involved were black, um, and the question was whether this is a sign that policing is is not racist uh, after all. Uh, this is not, I don't I don't think that that's true. I think that study after study after study has shown that Black people, Indigenous people, Latino people are um, disproportionately stopped, searched, arrested, assaulted and uh killed by police and that the race of the officer doesn't play as much of a of a role uh, that they see in the in the research but this is this is an indication to my mind about the culture of policing um and the historical uh use of police really to subjugate people of color and other disenfranchised people uh it's it's uh and, and when I think about the race of prosecutors, I guess I, I reached the same kind of uh, conclusion. I'm not sure whether the race of prosecutors uh, matter. Um, I don't know. But I do think that it's, it's more of a systemic issue in terms of prosecutors and their relationships with police officers and their role that may result in the, the low charging rates.
0: Okay. Uh John, we'll go well, to John. Let I me
3: mean, let I me mean, yield to uh, Peter because he doesn't he didn't oh, have the symbol yeah. up but he had his hand up. Oh Peter, Peter,
0: Peter Grilly. Right.
6: Yeah. Um yes, you, you touched on it a little bit in your introduction. You mentioned all the cases that you were looking into that we've never heard of, which leads me to wonder about um and ask you if you could say a bit more about the role of the press and the media in kind of removing some of the shield that police uh, departments and police officers have been protected by, um, by, by taking advantage of uh, public shame, um, public awareness of some of the problems.
9: Absolutely, it's a, it's a hugely important point. And the press The press has been uh, extraordinarily important uh, in this moment and really over for decades um, in revealing and, and 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 bringing the public's attention to the seriousness of these issues. And I mean, you can. It, you could you could think uh, back to the the publication of photos of Emmett Till um you know it, it, in terms of of uh, you know bringing public attention to uh to really egregious harms um and Rodney King and uh you know i mean you you could you could go on and on i think that the the press the press is underfunded in our country they don't you know don't have the kinds of resources that i I wish that they did, but when the press focuses on a case, uh, whether it's George Floyd or Tyree Nichols, um, I think that the work that they do really does, as you say, uh, break down the shields in those cases. You know, Derek Chauvin who murdered George Floyd did not try to get the lawsuit against him dismissed on qualified immunity grounds um, because I'm, I'm confident that the people of Minneapolis and the country and the world would have been outraged by the, the notion uh, that he would try to do so. Although notably, as I mentioned in the book, there are many other people who have been killed in, in, as George Floyd was with a knee to their neck or their back who, whose cases have been dismissed on qualified immunity grounds, uh, who didn't get the kind of public attention that George Floyd's case got. And I do think that this is very much about, this is, this is about, about protesters and the, and the community of protesters and activists. And it's also very much a story about the press and the power of the press. And I talk in the book, there's a chapter dedicated to the story of a man named Tony Timpa He's a white executive in Dallas. Uh, excuse me, in Houston, um, and he was killed uh, with a knee to his neck and back. Um, he was having a, a, a mental health emergency, um, and that was how the officers treated him. And the whole thing was videotaped on the on the body cameras. Um, officers joking, telling him to get up, you know, telling him to to as as though he was a little boy who needed to get up to go to school um and there his he was killed after being under the the knee of some, of an officer for for more than 12 minutes um that there's body camera of that you can see it on the news i mean you can see it on the the internet but that case is probably unknown to those of you on this call and and it's and it's unknown to to most people. And I can't possibly explain why that is true, why people don't know of, of his case.
3: John? The the Supreme Court, our uh, right-wing activist Supreme Court, in uh, last year refused to take up a obvious case that would have challenged um, qualified immunity. It was a case from Michigan here, where someone was shot um, as he was trying to drive away from a a food uh, drive-in, you know, White Castle or something. And the Supreme Court has permitted the practice, Defend, you know, it makes it very difficult for people to uh, to challenge qualified immunity with this kind of court. I think certain states have tried to pass measures to limit it, and I don't know how well that will go if it gets to the Supreme Court. So I wonder about the nature of what can happen uh, you know, when the Supreme Court can do this. But I also wonder why we're in a country that has the weakest trade unions in the developed world, and yet we hear that the police union is so strong that nobody can regulate or punish it, and that even police chiefs would like to be able to rein in these unions. So how could this be? What would be the source, really, of, these, of this police union power? Because it can't be trade unionism. Really.
9: Yeah, these, this is, these are, uh, this is a, a great set of questions, and I actually think they're tied together, why the Supreme Court has been so hostile and why unions are so powerful. I think, obviously, they're complicated questions, but I, I think at least one answer that explains both uh, is that uh, there is a myth, and I really believe it is a myth, that if there are any constraints put on police discretion and power, that police won't be able to do their jobs, no one will agree to become a police officer, right. and okay. then chaos will reign yeah. <laughs> in, our lo- in our society without any protection or controls. And th- these are, in fact, the justifications that have been offered really in those terms by the Supreme Court in support of Qualified Immunity Doctrine. They say that officers need qualified immunity because without it, uh, officers will uh, they, will be bankrupted uh, for reasonable mistakes that they make on the job in a split second. And then with it, when that happens, then officers uh, won't vigorously enforce the law or people will not agree, will not be willing to serve as officers at all. And then chaos. I mean, they talk. the Supreme Court talks about the importance of qualified immunity to society as a whole. And I really think that that's what they're saying. I've studied, uh, well, and I should say, and, and unions, when they've talked about the need for protecting officers for all of the, uh, the, the employment protections for officers, it, it's talked about in those same terms. And when union officials uh, oppose the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act in Congress or state legislative efforts to uh, get rid of qualified immunity or other kinds of reforms. That's exactly the language that they use. Now, part of my goal in writing this book uh, is to share the research that I've done that makes clear that none of those, those myths are, are either overblown or they're false. And, and just to, to briefly give you uh, an example, As I said, uh, the the, the sort of talking points against qualified immunity are that officers will be bankrupted for reasonable mistakes made on the job. I researched who pays settlements and judgments in police misconduct cases. And 99.9% of the dollars paid in these cases come from taxpayers or insurers, not the officers themselves. I looked at 81 jurisdictions over a six-year period. I found two, Cleveland and New York, where officers were ever required to pay anything. And the average they paid was $4,000, not not bankruptcy-inducing. The reason for those protections is not qualified immunity. The cases where there's been payouts are cases where qualified immunity hasn't worked. The protections are the result of what are called indemnification agreements. These are state laws or local policies that provide that when an officer is sued, the city pays for the defense of the officer and pays any settlement or judgment on behalf of the officer. It's the kind of agreement that many employers have with their employees. Uh, But that is the reason for the protection of officers' bank accounts, not qualified immunity. And when they say that officers will be bankrupted for reasonable mistakes made on the job or split second good faith mistakes, The Supreme Court's interpretation of the Fourth Amendment, which protects against unreasonable searches and seizures, already protects officers when they make reasonable mistakes. So, the way in which the Supreme Court has interpreted the Fourth Amendment means that officers can arrest, assault, shoot, kill someone who's done nothing wrong, shoot someone who has their wallet in their hand, and the officer says it looks like a gun, and not have violated the Constitution under the Supreme Court's logic. So these myths are uh, overblown or false, but they've been made by unions and they've been made by the Supreme Court. Um, And they have, to my mind, been so successful because if you believe that they're true, those stories are, are frightening. And no legislator wants to be responsible for sending their city or county or country into chaos, right? So I think that that's the reason that they've been so powerful. And I've gone on for a long time, but I can also talk about the state efforts, um, yeah, yeah. the state efforts if you if you sure. want. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. Okay, so, so um, you're absolutely right. Qualified immunity, the Supreme Court has sort of flirted with the idea of taking up qualified immunity again, but it, it doesn't seem like they're gonna take any action anytime soon. But I, as I talk about in the book, uh, in that last chapter, states, more than half the states across the country have considered and taken up um, state legislation that would effectively do away with qualified immunity. Here's how it would work. Um, Qualified immunity is a defense to a federal claim that people can bring in federal court. What these states are doing, and states can't overturn the federal law, but what states are doing is creating an alternative path that you could sue in state court for violations of the state constitution, uh, which in most states mimics the federal constitution and then those state statutes say qualified immunity would not be a defense to that state claim so it is a um it is a a run around the qualified immunity and the supreme court really couldn't do anything about it um, because it's it's state law um but Many of those efforts have been unsuccessful. Colorado passed a really interesting statute that I talk about in the book. Um, New Mexico passed a statute. Uh, New York City passed a statute. A lot of them failed because of these concerns. I've testified in a bunch of these state legislative hearings, and there's always union officials and city attorneys who make the arguments that I've just described. And then I offer my evidence to explain why it's not true. And then, and then, legislators ask me how I could be willing to bankrupt officers who make reasonable mistakes uh, and uh, the bills, (laughs) the bills fail, but, but some of them are being reintroduced. I think Washington, I just testified in Washington and it passed out of sort of the initial stage. Um, In New Hampshire, there was also a hearing this past week and that bill failed. Um, So there's, there's ongoing efforts around the country by states. To, uh, to create these uh, state law causes of action. And I think it's something I recommend in the books that, that people you know, in their states can, can really encourage and, and get involved in trying to get these kinds of bills passed.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, George Jones.
2: So I went to graduate school in the San Francisco East Bay area. Mm-hmm. And at that time, the Oakland Police Department was notorious for its violence. In the minds of some, a major reason for that violence was the fact that they were recruiting ex military who had just gotten, who had just been mustered out of the military from Vietnam. That the Oakland Police Department was actively recruiting these people because they were exactly the kind of people they wanted to be in in the police. So, my question is to what extent is the background of police officers responsible for the kind of violence that we see from them?
9: So it's a, a great question um, and uh, although I, I don't, I certainly don't know the answer myself and it's not where I do my own research. There is a lot of research um, that, is, that is very interesting on this point. Um, there is a, um, a psychologist uh, named Phil Goff, um, G-O-F-F, who is, used to be at UCLA and now he's at Yale. Um, and he's done a lot of really interesting research um, where he looks at um, people's um, various indicators of you know including their background. Certainly they, he looks at race and and gender and but also things like height and weight and um, and I'm sure military service and things and things of this nature. and then does these various exercises and his, Has great presentations showing um, different people, all officers, all acting within policy. But some people, you know, in this, it's like a, uh, it's like a virtual reality kind of thing. You know, the the officer has a pretend gun, and they're interacting with a a video. And some people, you know, in the video, the the other person has like a is drunk and has a stick or something, is sort of waving the stick around, and you know, some officers just immediately just shoot (laughs) the shoot the person um, and others talk them down. And part of his point was, it's not about the race of the officer uh, as much as it is about the, um, I I can't remember the word that he uses, but it's, it's sort of their, their comfort with their masculinity or comfort with their, um, their sort of ability to handle the the situation. Um, And I'm sure that Things like military background play, play a role in that um, as well. I certainly think that officers' dispositions based on background, um, among other things, does play a role in, in these decisions. And if we think about officers, you know, it, police in a militaristic way, uh, we're going to have a certain kind of police department. Um, I also want to recommend, in addition to Phil, Co- Phil-, Phil Goff's research, if you haven't already brought them on your show, the um, the authors of *The Riders Come Out at Night*. Uh, it, it's a terrific book about the Oakland Police Department um, mm-hmm. and about the long history of abuse in the police department, and also about efforts to um, bring that department under control through the through civil litigation. So. Um, it's a terrific book, and I, I recommend it to you, especially if you're um, interested in Oakland.
5: Um, first, a comment, and then a question. Uh, one of the jobs I've had was as the vice chair of the State Water Resources Control Board, and on my tenure there, I was sued, oh gosh, over a dozen times. I had a great deal of comfort that the state was going to defend me uh, for those lawsuits. I would not have taken the job if that had not been the case, and I was being sued by environmentalists who didn't like some of my decisions, or I was sued by the regulated community who didn't like my decisions. So I got sued by both both sides. So I don't think it's a bad thing for the state to back up uh, their employees. My question is one on cameras. Uh, because of the cameras, we have seen the horrendous activities of some of the police uh, throughout the United States. On the other hand, these cameras, I think, and i that's my question, probably ameliorate some of the actions of the police. Do you indeed think that things are starting to decrease somewhat because of the videos that we are seeing?
9: Interesting. I, you know, to your first, to your first comment, I, I want to say I, I actually agree. Um, I, I think that, uh, I do think that officers should be represented, and I do think that they should be, uh, I think that local governments should be picking up the tabs in these cases, or at least the majority of the tabs. Um, And the reason I think that uh, is that the goals of these cases are both compensation and deterrence. And officers are not going to have the resources to satisfy settlements and judgments in these cases. Um, In addition to the fact that that I I agree with you that that the the threat of being sued if there was, in fact, personal financial responsibility for all of these cases would be uh, would be very very high, as I, I talk about in the in the last chapter of the book. If you are going to have local governments or insurers pay these settlements and judgments, then the question is how best to deter wrongful conduct um, in these cases. And and there's a couple of different options that I talk about in the in the Colorado stat statute that I was mentioning before. What they do, which I think is very interesting, is provide that cities are going to must pay uh, for a lawyer and for settlements and judgments in the cases. But if the city finds that their officer acted in bad faith, they can require the officer to pay up to $25,000 or 5% of a settlement or judgment. And that creates a financial sanction in a situation where the local government finds that they have acted in bad faith. Um, but it also ensures that people whose rights have been violated are fully compensated um, for the harms uh, against them and, and and that's the and there's there's other options interesting options as well like personal liability insurance for officers um, and, and other approaches. but I do I, my I come down where you do that I think that officers um, should not be held personally responsible when they are sued for getting a lawyer and paying any settlement or judgment against them um, about the body cameras I think that I think that this the effect of body cameras on policing is really uh, mixed and on police misconduct uh, is mixed I, and I, I don't think there's a clear answer you know and and for a couple of reasons I do think that It increases uh, information and knowledge about what's happened in these cases and has turned us from a situation where it's, you know, what the officer said versus what the person said into some sort of more um, neutral description or depiction of what actually happened in a case. I don't think it's perfect. And I keep throwing references uh, to you, but there is a wonderful professor at the University of South Carolina uh, named Seth Stoughton, who's a former police officer. And he did a terrific um, thing in newyorktimes.com, which you can look at, where he shows the ways in which police cameras can distort what actually happened in a case. He shows the police camera, what the police cam, the body cam, would show in this instance. And has you sort of think about what actually happened, what you saw, and then shows the same uh, the same scene from a camera at a distance. Um, and it's just, a, it's just a very interesting way of making the point that, uh, cameras don't always reflect, um, don't offer, it, you think of cameras or video as offering just a neutral, a neutral perspective on what's happened. And it's, and it's not quite that, but I do think that it has certainly increased our transparency and, and knowledge. I will say one last thing about this, which is that the the killing of Tyree Nichols uh, is uh, watching that video was for me, you know, shocking and, and horrifying for a lot of reasons. But one that I keep coming back to is that these officers were wearing their body cameras. <laughs> they were, they, they were wearing their body cameras and it didn't, seem to impact them and their decisions now that could be because they were they forgot that their cameras are on but it also could be that the culture and their past experiences had made clear to them that nothing there weren't going to be consequences even if there was the video the landscape is bleak um but there is there is room for change. I think there are important changes. And this is a nice way to, to end the discussion with a little bit of optimism. Uh, I talk about in the book, um, I will, there's a whole chapter about this issue about sort of departments failure to gather and analyze this information. Um, But I do have some examples of departments that are looking at this information. And I tell a story about actually the New York City Police Department that has had sort of struggle back and forth with um, the city government to start gathering and analyzing this information. And it's a slow process. It's one, two steps forward, one step back, one step to the side, (laughs) you know, then another couple steps forward. But it has gotten better. And I think that you could say that about all of the topics that we've talked about, except qualified immunity has gotten worse. But but if you think about policing, about transparency, about um, policies, uh, there have been important steps forward even as our system does not work as it should. Um, And you can even see that in what's happening related to the, the horror related to Tyree Nichols. The video was released very quickly. The officers were charged very quickly. The officers were fired. This is not the system that I want. I'm not saying that the system is working, but it's working better than it did a few years ago. And I think that that's partly because of the amount of activism, the amount of attention, because of the press, uh, as was mentioned earlier, there is attention to these issues. There is a recognition um, that that there needs to be consequences and that departments need to make the decisive changes. I'm not sure whether law enforcement leadership's uh, hearts and minds have been changed, but I know that their political calculations have. And you can can look just back to 2014, uh, when a man named Laquan McDonald was killed in Chicago, shot in the back by a Chicago police officer. There had to be a fight for a year to get video released. Uh, And and getting any any public information about that case, any consequences was was a huge uphill battle. And you compare that um, Mm -hmm. to now. Um, Anyway, I do think that there are changes that have been made that can be made. I think there's things that people at every stage of government and community can uh, can do to improve the system. And there's no silver bullet but there are changes that are important that can be made and have been made
0: well thank you so much for coming on and good luck with the book very thank you. Qu- i
9: see there's one more question very quickly
2: what was the name of the the author that who, who that you mentioned in answer to my question goss or goff
9: oh goff still here i'll write it in uh i just wrote it in the chat still okay. goff Thank you. The, uh, the person who does the work on um, the video cameras on in The New York Times uh, and, uh, and elsewhere is Seth Stoughton
3: so, is it good golf G.O.F.F.
9: It is.
0: Ah. All right. Well, thank you.
6: Thank you yep. so thank you. much.
9: Thank you for the conversation. I really appreciate it. Mm. And uh, I hope you pick up a copy of Shielded, yes. How
0: the Police yes.
6: Became yes. Untouchable.
0: Thank you. Right. Thank, you. Right. Thank Bye. you. That was Joanna Schwartz. Her new book is titled Shielded, How the Police Become Untouchable. And that's it for this episode of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast, which you can find on Apple and Spotify, or from wherever you get your podcast. Our podcast also streams on wioxradio.org every Thursday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern Time. Plus, you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard.